It had been some time that Jesus had been teaching and trying to express some warnings about what was going to take place. He had done it at first subtly and then somewhat in riddles, but as the time approached for the events to take place, Jesus became much more forceful and direct. For a time and for a season, he would speak prophetically, but in a way that was clouded and unclear to those who were not listening with spiritual, eye, with spiritual ears and looking with spiritual eyes. But as the time drew near, Jesus began to be much more direct. And I want you and I to pay attention to what he is about to say. So if you would please, if you've brought a Bible, open it up to the book of Mark, chapter 8. If you're visiting us today, there should be a Bible in the, in the pew bench right in front of you. And you can open it to the book of Mark, chapter 8. <clears throat> in chapter 8, beginning with verse 31, we pick up the story. <clears throat> we are now uh, uh, quite a ways into Jesus' ministry. He has done many things and traveled into many places. He has shown his miraculous power to his disciples and to the uh, crowds that would gather around him. He has expressed his teaching in synagogues and in faraway places. But as the time is drawing close, as Jesus is preparing himself for his ultimate sacrifice to complete the purpose of his mission, he begins to be a little bit more direct, especially with those that are closest to him, his disciples. Now, you know, because you've been to church and you've heard the stories, you know that his disciples were his closest confidants. They had watched from a front row seat what Jesus did and what he taught. And you know that Jesus himself would, in time, leave the entire operation in their hands. But before he was to go, he wanted to make sure they understood clearly what Jesus' purpose and mission was about. And yet, as he got closer and closer to the day of his sacrifice, Jesus noticed that his disciples did not have a clue. So he had to be more direct. He had to be more forceful. And this is where we pick up the story. Mark chapter 8, verse 31. And then the Bible says, He, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man, capital S, capital M, referring to himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. In that, in, in that one verse, he is very specific about what's going to take place literally days later. But for years, a couple anyway, he has been saying these things in, 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 in different ways. He has been speaking about how a, a, a prophet is not accepted in his own hometown. He's been quoting verses about how God had sent him, but, but the people would reject him. He has, he has prophesied, if, if you tear down this building in three days, I'll, do you recall all those? God has spoken through Jesus from time eternal through the act of creation, and then through every act of faithfulness that the people of Israel have had, from the giving of offerings to the celebrating of festivals. It's all been about Jesus and what he's about to do. But, but as we're getting very close to the actual event, the disciples still don't really understand who Jesus is. Just in the verses before this, 
Jesus asks them, who do you think I am? And they respond, well, some say this, some say that. And Jesus says, what do you think? What do you think? Peter says, you are the Christ. God says, Jesus says, you're right, but do you know what that means? And then he begins to explain. In in plain terms, in plain English, notice here, he says, the Son of Man must suffer many things. This was contrary to what they had expected. As you know, we've talked about this many times, and you've probably heard it. The disciples, as they were following Jesus, even being empowered by Jesus to, 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 to cast out demons and do amazing things, they had it in the back of their mind that following Jesus was not an exercise in suffering. They had it in their mind that to follow Jesus was going to be an exercise in, in status upgrade. That Jesus would somehow elevate their status or better their situation. But here Jesus says that the Son of Man's uh, modus operandi, what he's going to do is he must suffer, must be rejected. Now they had seen some of this play out. They had seen how some received him and some did not. And they had watched the subtext of the religious leaders trying to entrap Jesus with questions, uh, trying to get him into corners, back him into places. But the disciples essentially felt that at one point or another, Jesus would win the crowd over and gain the political supports. And not only would all of the, uh, the Jews be united, but they would overthrow the Romans. That's what was in the back of their minds. You know this, we've studied this. But Jesus says... Now, specifically, that he would be rejected by elders, by the chief priests, and by the teachers of the law. Although this is sort of happening in, in, in their view, he specifically says, now you have to understand that this is going to happen, but it's going to lead, it, it's going to escalate. And he says that Jesus must be killed. He had hinted at this. He said, a seed, unless it's, 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 it's buried, it cannot bear fruit. He had said a number of these things. And in fact, like I just told you, the reality of this was lived out ever since the Israelites came out of Egypt. Ever since Abraham had been erecting altars. Ever since Abel brought a lamb to be sacrificed. The reality that the Son of God would come and be sacrificed had been lived out symbolically from the beginning. But the disciples didn't quite get it. They didn't make the connection. So Jesus has to spell it out. And he says, the Son of Man must be killed, but after three days he will rise again. And he spoke plainly about this. See that verse 32. But when Peter heard this, this is, why, this is how we know that the disciples didn't quite get this. Because here in, in verse 32, when the Bible says that Jesus spoke plainly that this was going to happen, Peter gets upset. And Peter takes Jesus aside. And notice what happens here. In my version, it says, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke, you, rebuke him. Has anyone ever taken you aside? Yeah? Okay. Uh, um. Uh, it happens to us too, us pastors. It's, here's kind of how it goes. You're shaking somebody's hand and go, uh, can I speak to you for a moment? Uh-oh. You know? And you go, oh, yes, what is it? No, no, no. Let's go over there. Uh-oh. It's like being called into the principal's office, right? 
Can I take you aside? When you put somebody aside and you begin to be rebuked, you know what the word means, right? Rebuke is not just like, uh, you know, they're arguing with you or yelling at you. Rebuke is from a position of authority or from a position of righteousness calling out something that is wrong. And the Bible says that when Jesus finally just spells it out, I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be killed, and I'll rise again. But, but Peter didn't get any of that last couple of phrases. What he heard is rejection, suffering, killed, and Peter takes Jesus aside. Now, he could have, because you know how Peter, you, you know Peter, his mouth usually would go before anything else. He would just, he could have just stood up, the elder statesman of the group, and he would have just addressed the issue. But, but, but Peter says, no, Jesus, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to disrespect you in public, but let me set you straight. And he pulls Jesus aside. He pulls Jesus aside, and he says, now listen, I, I don't want to have to say this in front of the others, but what you're talking is nonsense. He begins to rebuke him and tell him, you're, you're, you're way off the mark. Isn't it kind of funny? Because, I mean, by now, you know what happens. You know how this plays out. But isn't it kind of funny that Peter, a disciple, a fisherman, yes, he's, he's seen a lot, been through a lot, that Peter decides that it's up to him to set the Son of God straight. Doesn't that seem a little bit awkward? But you know what? You and I, I just like that. When Jesus begins to speak plainly into our hearts and telling us what's what, that's when we say, now hold on a minute, Jesus. Let me talk to you over here for a minute. Now, I, 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 suffering? Rejection? No, no, hold on a second, Jesus. Let me talk to you for a minute. Now, I, I don't want to have to tell you like this, Jesus, but you just don't understand. Peter takes Jesus aside and has words with him, takes issue with him, and says, hold on a second. I, I, I'm not sure, Jesus. I think you got things mixed up. What? You want me to serve at the church? No, I think you got the wrong man. What? You want me to give sacrifices? You want me to suffer? No, wait a minute, Jesus. This isn't what we signed up for. Peter tells him, you got it all wrong. We're not supposed to suffer. We're rejected. We're supposed to gain popularity. Things, we're supposed to get a status upgrade. He begins to rebuke him. So Peter's given Jesus the business. And then Jesus turns and rebukes Peter. Now here's the deal. Only one person has the right to rebuke anyone, right? That's Jesus. Peter's giving Jesus the business, and Jesus says, this is the famous line, right? Get thee behind me, Satan. I love that line. Jesus turns, and he rebukes Peter, and he says, get thee behind me. Get, get thee behind me, Satan. He turns to Peter. I like to add the word Peter. I have a friend named Peter, and whenever he gets out of line, I usually like to say, Peter, get thee behind me, and then I add Satan, because that's what Jesus did. Um, but, but here, essentially, Jesus is recognizing that Peter, though well-intentioned, is not acting necessarily in accordance with the principles of God. He is acting somewhat, though, listen, though good intention, somewhat under the influence of a different mindset. It's not of God. So Peter... He's rebuking Jesus. Jesus responds, 
Not to Peter necessarily, but to the intent. And it says, get behind me, Satan. He calls out what you and I sometimes are afraid to recognize. Jesus calls out that it, even in this exchange, the spirit and the forces of good are battling with the spirit and the forces of evil. It's a reality. Do you see that? The disciples don't recognize it. The people, because there's always a crowd, don't really recognize this, but Jesus does. So he looks and he says, get behind me, Satan. And then he says this, you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Here's where the rub is for us as Christians. As we experience, as we relate to Jesus' teaching, as we try to integrate these things into our lives, into our faith community, there are the things of God and the things of man. And they're generally in conflict. They are generally in conflict. So then Jesus turns to the crowd. This is verse 34. You can read along for yourselves. Then he calls to the crowd that were with him, and he says these things. If anyone would come after me or would, would follow me, he must deny himself, then take up his cross and follow me. See, this is how God operates. In the kingdom of God, there can only be one king, kingdom of God. Jesus says, if we're going to be part of this kingdom, there must only be one king, one uh, ruler, one person who dictates how things work. And in the kingdom of God, that one person who has the authority to set things in motion and to call things to be is God himself. It cannot be somebody else and still be called the kingdom of God. And what he also outlines right there very closely, look at this, verse 35, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. You've heard these things, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. For what good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? What God begins to outline in the words of Jesus Christ here is that the kingdom of God in its value set, what it sees as important, what it sees as vital and necessary is diametrically opposite to what humans generally see as valuable or important. In the human system, Jesus kind of points it out, most of us are concerned with self-survival. It's the most common uh, uh, scientific belief about our existence that we got here by, you know, uh, evolution, survival of the fittest. The strong survive, the weak perish. Our, our systems, uh, uh, social, economic, are essentially built upon that underlying premise that those that are strong, aggressive, will continue to thrive. And yes, we throw a few, you know, socialistic crumbs to the masses, but it's built, our system of capitalism, economics, everything is built essentially upon this concept. But it's diametrically opposite to the kingdom of God's concept of value. So Jesus calls it out. He says, for whoever wants to save his life, if you're out to get whatever you need for yourself, if you're out to survive and to thrive and to protect your own interests, if you're out to get things for yourself, whether that's relational, financial, even spiritual, if you're just out for yourself, Jesus says, you're going to come up empty. Because the kingdom of God does not operate that way. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel. That's how you find treasure of the kingdom. 
diametrically opposite. And as he's expressing this, he's literally about to do it, right? You know this. Jesus, Son of God, creator of the universe, sitting at the right hand of God, surrounded by the angels of glory and the, and, and the cherubims that bow down to him and sing his praises 24-7. He says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give this all up and, and, and come down, humiliate myself, be rejected, and suffer. And, and this is what we know about us. Very few of us would choose that path. I don't know about you guys, but I, I have a hard time with rejection. You guys like being rejected? Anybody like that? Anybody enjoy that? Yes? Okay, I'm sorry about that. I don't know what happened to you, but I'm really sorry. Uh, most of us don't particularly enjoy rejection. In fact, uh, we, we, we enjoy it so little that oftentimes, because we're rejected in certain senses, we just refuse to keep trying. Uh, rejection hurts. It, it scars. And, and, and suffering is not also something that we willingly enter into. You know, they say, uh, no pain, no gain. Nobody likes that. Uh, we want to not have to suffer. This is, this is, um, this is what we as parents do. We, we, we tell our kids, you know, we want you to have it better than I did. You know, you ever, your parents ever do that to you, tell you that? Why do I have to do this? Because I don't want you to have to suffer like I did. I want a better life for you. I want, I want better things for you. I don't want you to have to endure the pain and struggles that I had to do. Nobody enjoys that. But here Jesus willingly, you know this because you've studied, you've heard, Jesus specifically says, I willingly lay my life down. Jesus willingly submits himself, subjects himself both to suffering and to rejection. Now, it's not because he likes it. It's not because it's fun for him. Yeah, there are some weird people who like pain. I, I know. It's kind of popular nowadays in, in culture. Uh, this notion, special idea that, that people, especially women, like pain. But I think it's ridiculous. It, it, that's not why Jesus does it. The reason Jesus does it, the reason he comes and he gives his life, is to bless you and to save you and to save me. Everything that God does is motivated out of his love for others. The one moving factor in the economy of God is the selfless giving of his love. And so Jesus is saying, yes, yes, I will suffer. I will, I will, I will be rejected. And yes, I'm going to die. But the reason I do that is to give you a chance to live. For whosoever believeth in me, will not have to suffer, perish. But I'm giving this to you. So in the economy of God, Jesus says, if you're going to enter into my kingdom and follow after me, you have to deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Notice the order. Denying yourself comes first. A lot of us don't really want to do that, though. We want to follow him without denying ourselves. The problem with that is that in that kind of system, there's two kings. There's God, and then there's you, or, or me. And what we like to do is we like to pick and choose whoever is more advantageous. When we need something done for us, the oh dear Heavenly Father, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, do something for me. But when it's in my best interest, ah, let, let me talk to you, God. Let, let me have words with you. I want you to just hang out here for a minute because I think you're getting in my way. You don't understand what I'm trying to do here. 
So why don't you just hang back like Peter told them. Jesus, you're talking nonsense. Why don't you just hang back and let me handle this situation? Two kings. And, and, and Jesus explains this here because you and I as Christians have to understand that in order to participate in the kingdom of God, in order to sort of benefit from, from this economy, you have to exercise faith first. A lot of us don't really want to do that. We want God to sort of prove himself, sort of bless us first, give us bounty first, then we negotiate. Well, if you do this, then. But here Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, if if you want to be part of this kingdom, you must first deny yourself. That takes an enormous amount of risk. Or I would say trust. Even better, faith. To empower the kingdom of God, you have to exercise trust in God first. That includes the things that are at your disposal. Your health, your finances, even your family. You have to take a risk with God first. It's an expression of trust. It's how God says, this is how you and I will get to know each other. He gives us all the counsel and, and he does actually bless us. But to really unpo- unlock and uncork the, the, the explosion of his blessing, you have to exercise a step of risk, faith, and trust. Deny yourself, he calls it. Say no to you first. Take a chance. And then take up your cross and follow me. And the results of that will be explosive. That's the way God works. That's the way his economy works. First, faith. First, trust. First, faith. Then, the windows of heaven, the empowering of heaven, the blessings of the God of the universe come crashing in. If you've been living a life that's so-so and hum-hum, if your Christianity is like waning, and you need an infusion of true power, first, faith. First, trust God's counsel on his dietary uh, norms. First, trust God's counsel on how to handle your finances. First, trust God's counsel on, on, on the right woman to pick. First, trust God's counsel on, on, on how to handle a disagreement. And then you'll unlock the power of God's blessing upon you, your household, and the rest of your community. First, faith.